Anesthesia Deconstructed is supported by National University's CRNA program. National University's CRNA program is one of the nation's top programs for CRNAs and dedicated to making you a successful CRNA. The program doesn't just prepare you for entry-level practice. National focuses on making you a full-service provider and gives you insight into what is actually happening in the industry. With connections to faculty with backgrounds in advanced clinical practice, academics, research, and anesthesia services management. Learn more at nu.edu. Welcome to Anesthesia Deconstructed, science, politics, realities. Listen in as medical professionals join industry expert Mike McKinnon to discuss the latest science and medical advancements, the effects of our political climate, and the realities of today's changing healthcare environment. Let's get started with your host, Mike McKinnon. Hello, everybody. This is Mike McKinnon back with the podcast. And on the podcast today, we have Josh Olson, who's a CRNA from Detroit, working in one of the larger hotspots for COVID-19. And we're here to get a little bit of information about how it is to be on the front lines. Josh, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Glad to, glad to be here. And you're right. It is Detroit is a hotspot right now. Um, unfortunately, for better uh, or for worse, it's um, uh, we are definitely a hot spot right now for better in the sense that it's, um, a chance for people to really, uh, show off what CRNAs can do, but for worse that it's been just devastating for our community and for our patients, you know, in so many ways. But, um, you're, you're absolutely right when you say it's been, we're, we're a hot spot right now. It sure is. I mean, everyone I'm sure is seeing it in the news and, um, Tell us a little bit about your background, where you went to school, and how long you've been working as a CRNA. Yeah, sure, sure. So I actually, um, I worked for General Motors. Yeah, I work here. I work in, I live in Detroit. So uh, like a lot of people did, I worked for the big three for a uh, period of time. And I went back to school, became a nurse um, a little later than most people did in my mid uh, to late 20s. Uh, worked for a nurse as a nurse in the ICU. Uh, at a, major trauma hospital here in Detroit, which was a great, great uh, way to kind of cut your teeth as a, as a nurse in the ICU. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, I did that for seven years. Then I went to uh, the University of Detroit Mercy's uh, 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 nurse anesthesia program, graduated in 2015, and then uh, have been working in uh, Detroit at a um, major level one uh, trauma center ever since. Wow. And you, I mean, for you, this is really hitting home. You're a native, you're from there, you know, the town, the people. It oh makes yeah. It, uh, I'm sure a lot more personal. Oh yeah. No doubt about it. It's, it's hard to see. It's hard to watch. You know, I live, I live in the city, um, and, uh, work in the city and, um, uh, the city itself has really been hit hard. The, the suburbs and surrounding area in Michigan, it hasn't been as much, which is, I think, true across the world. You know, in urban areas and in poor areas, uh, it tends to be much more severe, and that's certainly true here. But it's really hard to watch people that you know and love um, uh, be be sick or lose loved ones, um, and uh, it's you know it's painful to watch as a provider in the hospital to see these 
patients sick and there's like nothing we can do. You just watch them, you know, uh, as they uh, get sick and die. Um, but then you, you talk to family members and they're scared. And what's crazy too, is everybody knows is, you know, they're not allowing visitors in the hospital right now because, you know, the, of the spread of this. And so, these patients, one is they often die alone. I mean, which is so horrible to say. I mean, Jeez. it chokes, chokes me up every time I, I say it. Um, you know, a lot of times it's just the, the nurse in the room with them when they die. Um, but also the family, the family doesn't know what's happening. They don't understand. Um, and so it's hard. You know, I feel like I'm the liaison for so many of my friends because their family members at the hospital and they say, they say, you know, Josh, what's happening with this grandma? What's happening with my mom? What's happening to my uncle? And I'll go and I'll look and try to communicate with him. But otherwise, they have no contact. They don't understand the severity of it. And then all of a sudden, their family member's gone. It's it's painful to watch. And at the same time, my friends in the suburbs and or in the in rural Michigan have no concept of this. It's like what is what are we making the big deal about? You know, why is all this you know hubbub about? You know, it's not that big a deal, and it isn't for them. It's not impacting them like it is impacting the cities. Um, so it's a real dichotomy and and hard to experience and hard to watch. Um, oh, that is, that's unbelievable. I mean, I, some people have described it um, in New York, uh, friends that are working there now as apocalyptic in nature. I mean, they just oh, never yeah. seen anything like it. You know, the closest thing yeah. any of my military friends can associate it with is being, you know, in a war zone and watching people die and you're, you have, you have limited resources, inability to help them because you just don't know what the right thing is to do. I think that's yeah, really tough. Yeah, it's so true. It is. It is really hard. It is hard. And, you know, like you said, there's there's limited uh, options of what you can do. You just, you do the best and use some, some interventions that you can do, but it's like there's not, there's no cure for this. There's not even anything that really seems to mitigate it at this point. Mm-hmm. We are using, you know, a lot of these drugs that you're hearing about in the news, you know, uh, uh, pretty extensively for these patients. But, um, um, you know, uh, up to this point, there's certainly no panacea. There's no cure at this point. And so it's, it's painful to watch. Yeah, it is hard. You know, I mean, there's always news, news stories about all kinds of different drugs, Redemsevir, um, and, you know, hydro, hydroxychloroquine and zinc and erythromycin, all these things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. a lot of great, uh, definitive, no. mostly inconclusive research out there at yeah. this point. So, yeah. I mean, from from what you've been seeing so far, have you seen any benefit from those things, or can you really even tell? It's too early to say. And the yeah. that's going to be the problem with this is by the time we understand, hopefully, Lord willing, this will be mostly behind us. But it's really going to take some time for us to understand. We're doing multiple studies at my institution. Um, we're even doing a large uh, study right now with 3,000 um, participants where to see if this is potentially prophylactic to use chloroquine uh, prophylactically. But, you know, we won't really know the, some of the answers to this data for, for months, you know, which, you know, I think we'll be through the worst of it. I hope, oh man, I hope we'll be through the worst of it um, by then, you know, but uh, it's just too early to say that, hey, this is the thing or this is the it combo. Is. Or if we just did this with this and yeah. then did this, just, we just don't know. It's too early. Yeah. I think we're at that point where people are, are reaching for hope in any way they can find it. And yeah. if, if that makes them feel a little bit more secure that maybe this could work, then, I mean, really, there's nothing wrong with that as long as they maintain that realistic yeah. view of that's not what the evidence says today. We just don't know. 
That's yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, and so we try to we try what we can try, and if it doesn't cause harm, then we'll keep trying it, and hopefully yeah, that we did the right thing. Yeah, but if it, but some of them do cause harm, as you know, you know, some yeah. some of these things do cause harm. So, um, and the second leading cause of death for these COVID patients is, you know, cardiac issues, and a lot of these drugs, you know, have some cardiac side effects, and so, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's just uh, you can't you can't win with it. Yeah, you can't. That's win. crazy. And we've been hearing a lot, uh, just in general, I think out there, you know, on the, on social media and on, in the news about concerns about, you know, personal protective equipment. Yeah. How, yeah. how have you felt like, um, you've been prepared for that? Yeah. You know, our particular hospital had a lot of foresight and that we started rationing PPE pretty early in the process before it really hit us hard. We started to ration the PPE. So that helped us kind of mitigate this, you know, uh, loss a little bit. It didn't prevent the problem um, because supply chain was completely disrupted for everybody. Demand went through the roof and supply plummeted. And so yeah. it was tough for everybody. Um, but, you know, we did we did what we could with what we had. And, you know, and, and the, part of the problem, too, is the recommendations kept changing. So it's like one day, one day you can reuse it, one day you can't, one day you can reuse an NA5, cover it with a surgical mask, you know, and, uh, you know, one day you have to throw them all out. One day you don't have to. So it became very difficult to just try to keep up to date and to follow the guidelines. Um, but you know, one of the things that we've done too, and a lot of, a lot of systems have not been doing this and, and they have reasons not to do this, but we've been allowing providers to bring in outside PPE, um, mm-hmm. as long as it's checked by our, uh, infectious disease department. And so, um, infectious disease will check out uh, check out your PPE, which a lot of providers like to have their own big respirators. They bring from home with the big cartridges on them, and so yeah. we've developed protocols and guidelines for that. Um, but it certainly has been a problem. And uh, you know, some days we'll say, you know, you can you can use these gowns. Okay, stop using those gowns because they're about to run out. Okay, now you can use these masks. Okay, no, these masks uh, maybe aren't safe. You can't use these masks anymore. Um, and so it's certainly been uh, an issue, although I it's think a it's moving been an target. Issue. Yeah, I think it's been worse for other other systems than it has been for ours. Um, but it certainly certainly is a problem. And you know, I, I think we've done a good job of protecting our people. But even even then, even when I think we've done a, a really, I don't feel like people have ever been asked to, to go into a patient's room or care for a patient without the right PPE. Um, but even then, we've lost about ten percent of our workforce. Wow! Either, yeah, either either testing positive or showing symptoms and then being quarantined. And, and so, who knows where they got it? In hospital at home? Yeah, who knows? who knows? Who knows? Yeah, who knows? It could have been in the community, like you said, and it could have been at the hospital. Um, but and we've done a good job of protecting them. But still, it's like it's mm-hmm. just so hard to know. Uh, to stop it, to stop it spread, you know? That's true. And this this virus is different, you know? I mean, the reason why viruses like H1N1 or Ebola don't get very far is because they're really, really lethal. So someone gets sick yeah. and they get really, really sick really, really quickly. But someone right. catches, you know, uh, COVID-19 and they've had it for five days before they show symptoms. And, That's right. And uh, they're shedding it two days before symptoms. And they may yeah. have symptoms in this time of year that they've had every year, 
you know, oh yeah, yeah I got a exactly sniffly right. cold. Sure, I can't smell, but that happens every time I get sniffles, and I've got a bit of a cough. But hey, I mean, that's what happens this time of year. So I think it yeah. confounds it. You know, I think we're, I think we miss a lot of of it of positives, and that's why we struggle with containment. It's not a fault of the system so much as it is a nature of the virus. It's uh, insidious. Yeah, insidious. it's like a perfect yeah. storm. Yeah, it's like a yeah. perfect little little guy that just. Uh, seems to have its act together and which really hurts us no doubt about it i mean most you you, like you're right when you say that most you know you get an infection you end up self-quarantining right away because you get sick and you feel crappy so you go to bed and you stay in bed for two days and that's the time when the virus is shedding and so you're you end up self-quarantining and protecting everybody but now with this one with this one it's shedding long before you have symptoms potentially 11 to 14 days like you could be shedding this thing and have no real symptoms and so it's spread So quickly, there's a large percentage of people out there that are at least minor symptoms, if not some that are in their in their view asymptomatic, but they're still shedding virus that whole time. So, you know, there's a lot of vector sensitive to it because everybody's like, Mm -hmm. "Oh, I have a I have a sniffle right now. Do I have it? Do I have do I have tested? You know, I have do I I have the COVID? I have friends. (laughs) Totally, everybody calls me and they say, "I have this symptom and this symptom. Should I get tested?" Well, probably you don't need to get tested, but if you continue to have symptoms, you get a fever, maybe you should you should quarantine mm-hmm. for a little while. But, um, but yeah, it just seems like everybody's on, you know, hyper, uh, hyper vigilant right now about it. Oh, yeah. Really uh, anxious about it. And and part of the problem with testing the original PCR test, and I think we're starting to move past that now, but, but up to this point, you know, the sensitivity was 70, 80%. Well, so yeah, you, you get yeah. two or three people out of 10 tested negative that were actually positive. Yeah, and that that so that just confounds the whole thing. You test the I, most yeah. systems are doing two tests before they consider someone a negative now, but you know that only just started, and so yeah, now you're in this situation yeah, so where true. you say someone's negative and they come back sicker, and because they're sicker, they test positive because they have a greater viral load. It's likely why you know the, the sensitivity is probably better when they're sicker, but at the end of the day, if they're shedding when they're asymptomatic, you know it's what makes the whole social isolation thing actually work is that. Since yeah. you don't know if you're positive, yeah. if you stay home, everyone's better off. Yeah, which we have in Michigan taken some very extreme measures uh, for social distancing. And it seems like it really has flattened the curve here. It seems like it's really Excellent. helped us. Yeah, it, what we thought was going to peak um, at the end of the month or at the beginning of May, really, it seems like, oh, I sure hope, it seems like it's already peaked. That it peaked maybe about three, four days ago. And um, now our our admissions and discharges are about equal as opposed to oh, just all being admissions. Yeah, yeah exactly. so that's really good news that we're starting to plateau a little bit. But I'll tell you what, it is like a ghost town. Like you said before, it's like post-apocalyptic. I ride mm-hmm. my bike to work every day, and it is empty. It is just bizarre going through the city and just seeing nobody, nobody on the street. I see it in the afternoon and evening, people are out walking and families are going for a, a walk and all those people going for a job. But man, the, everything's shuttered, everything's closed, the restaurants, the businesses, everything is closed. It's just bizarre. It's like, what happened? You know? It is. But I mean, it shows that people are, are doing what we, we want them to do. You know, they're yeah. doing their part. And, you know, I, I'm just so thankful that they are because as odd as it feels, they kind of go through the city on their way to work in the morning and the evening, you know, and, and see everything gone and no one around. It's a reminder that like, oh, people are really doing their part, which really helps me, you know. Um, oh, and yeah. so I'm grateful for it. It's out of the field. It speaks to the fear 
that I think uh, this kind of a thing, the unknown, um, really generates in people. You know, because it's yeah. not it's not a particularly American thing to do to you know totally. accept restrictions. Right. <laughs> you know, right. totally. uh, to, to be totally. told they can't leave their house or yeah. you know to shut down a restaurant and be put out of work. I mean, all these things go against that sort of economic driver that I think a lot of Americans feel, and freedom is is paramount. And but the fact that you're seeing so much of these these things happen and people just doing it and following it just speaks to the fear because I think the American public as a, as a group looks at healthcare, you know, whether you're an APRN, CRNA, a physician as the people who have the answers. And when that time comes that there aren't answers, now it's really terrifying and they're searching for them everywhere. The internet, they're looking for confirmation bias everywhere they look, you know? And so that, that generates a lot of fear and, and luckily fear is a powerful motivator and it's keeping them home. I mean, that, that's yeah. working in, in our benefit in the healthcare system so that we're not overwhelmed. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is, it is a strong motivator. Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, but it really mm-hmm. is a strong motivator. There's a, there's a healthy amount of fear to have uh, in this situation, you know? Yeah, I don't want people to panic, but fear seems appropriate. It is. And uh, for for you guys in your, in your system, are you... Um, are you, how are they working the PPE? Are you guys wearing N95s every day? Are you switching them out every second yeah, day? Yeah. How's it working? Yep. So we are using um, what we call airborne plus precautions for any aerosolization procedure, which includes yeah. intubation. So every patient, every time in the hospital, just because we have such a high percentage of patients uh, that are in the hospital right now, and like you said, we don't even know about um, mm-hmm. potential positive patients that have no symptoms. So for Every patient that we're doing any aerosolization procedure on, like intubations, we're doing Airborne Plus, which is the gown, the gloves, the N95, and a face shield. Right. Um, some people are electing to do extra, like shoe covers, head covers, double gloving, uh, uh, extra mask over their N95, things like that. But for every one of those procedures, we're doing uh, the Airborne Plus precautions. For um, uh, every other procedure for a patient that is uh, not suspected or not known to be COVID, then we're doing what's called contact plus precautions, which is all the same gear, except we're using a surgical mask instead mm-hmm. of a, uh, an N95. But um, uh, uh, we're, we're pretty much gearing up for everybody all the time right now, which continues to, to you know, hurt us because PPE is in such high demand. But, but at the same time, it's like, I, we can't put our providers at risk. We can't put our people at risk, you know? And it's like, sure, your, your patient probably doesn't have anything. You know, they probably aren't sick, but let's yeah. protect ourselves anyway. Because if you guys all get sick, if all of our healthcare providers get sick, then, then, then everybody, everybody goes down, you know, the mm-hmm. patients and the providers. So, so it's, you gotta, you gotta take care of your providers first. That's the most important thing at first. Yeah, absolutely. Are you guys using any of the, uh, sort of the inventive things that have been out there on the internet, like the uh, intubation box or the yep. plastic yep. over the head, or yeah, all that kind yeah, of stuff. yeah. So um, one of our um, uh, um, uh, electricity uh, providers here, TTE mm-hmm. Energy, actually donated some. Then we had another CRNA here who was very resourceful. He actually made a couple for us. So we have some intubation boxes that we've been using um, that are great. They really uh, seem to be a potential containment. I mean, I, 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 there's no research yet on them, you know, how they do, but uh, yeah. it sure makes the providers feel um, uh, better yeah. and uh, they, they work, they seem to work great. 
Yeah, absolutely. We've got uh, a couple of the intubation boxes and then we're using a lot of clear plastic on people when we're putting in LMAs yep. and that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's just one more barrier, you know, from the you totally. know, patient's going to cough, especially with an LMA, they're not paralyzed if they're going to cough or something or gag when yeah. you put the LMA in because maybe you didn't give enough or maybe they take more than the average person. At least you've yeah. limited where that goes, you know, and totally. I, yeah, and we're doing basically the same thing in that we're you know, we're either wearing an N95 mask or our personal respirators. Uh, there's a number of us that have like 3M masks that have P100 cartridges mm-hmm. on them, that kind of stuff, you know. Uh, and um, for all the intubations, all the extubations, any procedure like a bronch or an EGD yep. where the aerosolization yep. is at significant risk. And we're leaving the plastic covering over them basically until the surgery's over and extubating with that hanging over their face and extubating everybody deep just That's to great. avoid that That's coughing. And so things have things have gone really we, well. And I think I think it adds a lot of um, comfort to the other people in the OR when they yeah, see you totally. have a system, you know? Totally. And it, and it seems like, oh, they're just so over the top. But why not? Why not be over the top? Protect everybody, you know? We had a patient come in just the other day, you know, acute stroke. We get, we get a lot of those. And, uh, you know, we can't postpone them, you know, they have to, have to take care of them. And mm-hmm. everybody did every possible thing. The patient had no symptoms, had was not had no reason to think that they were, had, had COVID, but everybody geared up gowned up in 95, put the box on and the uh, interventional radiologists were like, boy, you guys are really going over the top on this. And it's like, yeah, we are just in case. And you know what happened? They tested that patient that night. He turned up positive. There you go. So it's like, yeah, right. we went, we went over the top. It seemed crazy and excessive, but, but thank God they were, they were crazy and excessive. Yeah. Thank God they were, they were acted so, you know, protective of themselves and everybody else mm-hmm. because they really saved themselves, but they also saved all the other people that were around. And putting that box on there and putting a mask on the patient before they did anything. And, you know, it's like, yeah, it's over the top and it's crazy and maybe a little excessive, but it's going to save some people. And so go for it. If you can, well, that's you know, absolutely go for true. It. You know, it's absolutely true because at the end of the day, the patient comes in and they cough and say two or three people in the room um, contact yeah. COVID-19. Now, if the patient was at home and coughed and their family member got it, that doesn't necessarily get spread to a bunch of high-risk people. But as a provider, right. knowing that you may not show symptoms almost at all or at least for five days and be shedding for at least two, well, you're around all the sickest people. I mean, the who wants to be responsible for uh, killing someone's grandmother, grandfather, brother, sister, mother, father? I mean, you just don't yeah. want to be. But the risk is right. just too high. And that's a heavy load, uh, you know, emotionally on providers and you know, just like you said, that this is a multifactorial thing. You don't want to lose your provider from the hospital, but you don't want them getting sick in an instant because they didn't take the what appeared to be over the top precautions and yeah. then get yeah. 150 other people sick over the next five days in the hospital. You know, I mean, that's totally. just that's just crazy talk. And and I think that from the perspective of you know provider safety, when you when you look at some of the data, a lot of the young uh, medical professionals who are dying in their 30s and 40s and 50s. Even ones with almost no or no medical history are anesthesia, emergency medicine, ENTs, and pulmonologists, people who are right in the airway where viral load may be very high. And so you're getting an overdose essentially and, and your immune system gets overwhelmed. That that's seems to be, seems to be a trend. Um, and so PPE can eliminate that. Why would, why would you take the risk? Yeah, totally. You know, we had, that, that really hits close to home. You know, we, our department's not huge. We have, I think, just over 60 PRNAs. And I think we've had seven of them uh, uh, contract uh, COVID-19. 
Um, nobody, thankfully, had severe symptoms. We have also a pretty robust residency program, another probably 60 residents. And we actually had one of our residents who um, contracted uh, the virus, got very sick, had to be intubated. And wow. thank God he was discharged home today. I mean, it was like, uh, I mean, you, every provider in the hospital like let a sigh of relief out. Thank God. And this is, I mean, he's a, he's an anesthesia resident. So he's a young, a young, healthy person, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it was just, just terrifying and such a reminder, like you said, like, you know, it's the PPE is the, is the key thing. And he, unfortunately, was uh, rotating in the ICU just as this was starting. And so I don't think it was on everybody's mind like mm-hmm. it is today, like what, what was happening. So I don't know. I don't know how he got it or whatever, but, um, uh, you know, just what a sad event that was for us to say, oh, no, he got it. And now he's admitted to the hospital. Now he's in the ICU. Now he's intubated. Oh, Lord, what's happening, you know? I was the twenty eight year old guy intubated on the ventilator, you know. But thank God he was uh, he was uh, extubated and, and sent home today. Yeah, he's lucky. I mean the the mortality rate for once you get on a ventilator can be high, and so it's, it's uh, uh, yeah, it's terrifying. And, and you know, for you guys there, what are you guys seeing uh, as far as once a patient comes in? Um, so let's say they come into the ER and they have some symptoms and they're, you know, like maybe a little short of breath. Are they starting to utilize like high full nasal cannula by CPAP proning, self proning and all that business? What's yeah. The, uh, so we, we're, we're, that's, that's one of the difficulties with it. So we're doing high flow nasal cannula. There's a little bit of, um, controversy over that nasal cannula, high flow nasal cannula, the CPAP and the BiPAP because they potentially can aerosolize the virus. You know, all that positive pressure, all that blowing in there can blow the virus around. However, it does prevent patients potentially from getting intubated. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with the, with the we have some great ICU, I intensivists, our pulmonologists are just great. And um, we really worked out what I think is a good plan is we do some high-flow nasal cannula, but only up to 30 liters. We're not going like the high, real high, you know, 40, 50, 60 liters. Yeah, that's what I'm seeing, 30. Yeah, and then we don't do any BiPAP or CPAP for any known COVID patients right. just because the aerosolization is too high. So this is the sad part is that we're going very quickly to intubation. The mm-hmm. minute the salter doesn't work anymore and and they're desatting and their their hypoxia just can't be managed, then we have to intubate. And so, boy, we do a lot of intubations. Um, uh, we, I think we had, uh, you know, my friend did a shift the other day, a 12-hour shift, and he had eight intubations. And mm-hmm. most of these patients are awake and talking to you, you know, mm-hmm. and, but they're just, they're stats. They can't get their stats up anymore. And their only option at that point now, if they can't do any more non-invasive is to intubate. And so that's a really hard thing to know, to look at someone in the eye and know that there's a good chance, higher than 50, 50 chance that I'm going to be the last person they see. I'm mm-hmm. going to push these meds. I'm going to put this tube down their throat. And that's the last memory they're going to have is me looking over them. And uh, that's a hard, that's a hard thing for a lot of our providers to do and be part of. It's a, it's a heavy, a heavy burden to, to carry around with you. Um, um, but it's really, uh, a profound moment too for a lot of people to, to be there, to comfort somebody and to provide the best care they can for them and, mm-hmm. and, and do the best possible thing they can for them. Yeah, I foresee there being a lot of PTSD treatment coming after this uh, yeah. for healthcare yeah. providers, for sure. Totally, yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I think, yeah. I think when you mentioned about the high flow nasal cannula and people getting, you know, hypoxic, there's definitely a lot of controversy. Like you mentioned, I mean, there are lots of centers now that are, that are just ignoring the SATs. And if the patient yeah. is mentating and their, their AA gradient isn't significantly high, they don't have the beginnings of a cytokine storm picture where inflammatory markers are elevating that they're letting them roll. And sometimes that goes yeah. for three, four days and yeah. sometimes they get intubated, but they seem to do better when you delay that because negative inspiratory uh, breathing, you know, negative pressure breathing, which is your regular spontaneous breathing, does a yeah. much better job at aerating all portions of the lungs yeah. than positive pressure, including APRV. So that's, exa- I think they, that's exactly right. They seem to do a little bit better. And, and, you know, and some of them just don't get intubated at all. So now you've got a ventilator for someone who really, really needs it. And then that that's because there are some people who this other option is not going to be there. The the happy hypoxic option where patients are awake looking at you and their sets are 60 percent. And you're thinking all this is wrong, literally against everything I've ever learned. Um, Yet (laughs) yet they seem fine. So should you really intubate them knowing that's going to lead them down a a much more potentially iatrogenic damaging path of high pressure support through an ARDSnet protocol, you know, yeah, if they, if yeah, they have compliant so lungs. Yeah, it's so, so true. And, and a patient yeah. like you, if you were to come in, you know, you'd be a great option to kind of let it ride. You yeah, know, an 80 year old from the nursing home, it's like, not you know, when do they well. go down, they're going to, they're going to, they're not going to do well. You know, yeah. it's not going to go well for them if they decompensate. They're going to get exactly. very quickly. So many variables yeah. involved in that decision-making process. Totally. Yeah, totally. And when, yeah. once they get them in the uh, ICU, are they are they doing a lot of proning? Are you guys using rotabeds or just flipping them? Or yeah, you know, so we have I think there's 861 positive COVID patients in the hospital right now. Um, so it's a lot. Of, that's a lot of patients. Um, so we don't have roto enough roto prone beds to go around. Right. They're expensive. They're expensive anyway. So what we are doing is we're just proning people in their beds. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. And so, um, uh, we actually have several prone teams of which CRNAs are a part of, and they go from room to room and they prone these patients. They do a trial usually eight to 12 hours of a trial in the prone see position. And you, yeah, and they see how it goes, you know, whether other labs better, are they worse? Are they not at the same? And then if they are improved, then they'll continue to, to uh, prone and to pine them over the next few days. Um, uh, but we don't have, unfortunately, enough prone beds to go around because of mm-hmm. the, the volume of patients that we have. But we are doing a lot of proning, um, and it seems for some patients it really makes an impact pretty quickly. It makes it yeah. pretty, pretty uh, fast. Uh, change. Yeah, pretty quickly. You you usually will draw gas, the nurse will draw gas half an hour afterwards, and you'll see a change in half an hour. Yeah, that's um, you know, which makes sense. It makes sense physiologically to understand why this, why this helps. Um, uh, but, uh, it's uh, pretty, pretty profound. Yeah. You know, you're most of the consolidation from, from what I've been reading is, is posterior, uh, consolidation. So, you know, I'd be right. laying flat on your back. So, you know, all your, uh, as you're laying flat on your back, you're also mostly perfusing that portion of the lung. When you flip them yeah. over or prone, now you're perfusing a portion of the lung that maybe is not as damaged or not as inflamed more specifically. And so right. now, now you're, able to maintain a better oxygen perfusion ratio and that AA ratio should significantly change in the right direction. It, it, it's, exactly it right. makes sense. It makes sense as long as that's where the, the you know, the consolidation yeah. is in the posterior sides. And so yeah. it, it, it's, it's been a big deal. It's certainly a lot of really good evidence for um, something we've been doing a long time, but now for this, that it, it seems to help, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It seems to help. But at the same time, it goes back to the fact that, 
boy, I wish we had a cure. (laughs) You know, it's like we're we're essentially mitigating, you know, all all the symptoms is what we're doing. But it's like, well, I wish we had a cure, you know, uh, and we can we can slow its process and hopefully get somebody through the whole process. But that's all we can do. You know, that's all we can do at this point. Yeah. You you know, I think I think. COVID-19 itself is not killing anybody. It's uh, the uh, the end result of COVID-19. The, yeah, the that's right. patients who are already unhealthy to begin with or, you know, they've got ARDS to begin with or they do, they roll down the pathway to ARDS and end up with permanent pulmonary fibrosis. You know, that's a whole other subset of patients we're going to be dealing with for the next 20 years is the, the post-intubated patients who maybe have yeah. some permanent lung damage and, and decreased functional capacity. And then, you know, on top of all that, you've got um, a discussion about, you know, what's going to happen with those 33% that have a, a cardiogenic related injury, yeah. you know, they, yep. and cytokine storm and all these things that happen because of something else. But really those are the things that are killing patients and they're, they're, they're very difficult to control. I mean, yeah, none of these particular true. outcomes are new in the ICU, but they're new with this. And I think yeah. that's what makes it the picture very different. Yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and we don't really know. That's the scary thing about it. It's so early in the process. Mm-hmm. We don't know. What is this going to look like? What's this lung scarring going to do to you a year mm-hmm. from now? Is this temporary? Is this permanent? Is this going to be something that's going to shorten your life expectancy? Yeah, you made it through a long-term intubation from COVID-19, but now you have permanent lung damage. Like We don't we don't really know what the repercussions are going to be over time, but it, it seems like there really could be a lot you know, uh, of potential negative repercussions for people, even though is that make it through this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's definitely a big deal and we'll only start to understand that when we understand exactly how COVID-19 actually causes these problems in the first place. And still nobody has any really definitive ideas, lots of theories out there, but on how it actually impacts it. And, and the, the prevailing theory changes every 48 hours, (laughs) you know, true. A lot of talk about porphyrin ring and heme rings and the inability to bind oxygen. And now all of a sudden they're like, well, you know, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Maybe it's not that. And then, you know, talking about microemboli, but people are getting Lovenox and some people are even putting Hepin drips and there's a yeah. trial with TNK and it's not making any difference. They're still having clouded right. lines. The outcomes are still the same. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. obviously we're missing the, you know, the, the primary cause wherever that yeah. is and why it's happening. Yeah. You can't fix the problem if you don't know why it's happening. And likely it's multifactorial. You know, a lot of different things going on in a lot of different systems. It yeah. just seems to, you know, love to eat up cells in all different areas. So um, absolutely, it's hard to, hard to pinpoint them. And there's no silver bullet for this guy. No. And have you been seeing, uh, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence out there. And I know on some of the other podcasts, there's been discussions about it, uh, like uh, a lot of clotting of lines that you're having to replace. Oh yeah. It's terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. You know, we, we initially, when this you know, first started going down about a month ago, you know, we were called, you know, we, we offered our assistance because we had stopped most of our uh, elective cases that are, we actually didn't call them elective cases. We were our non-time sensitive cases. We, we stopped. And so we were available. So a lot of CRNAs were offering to go to the ICU. They were so swamped and do lines. And that's the, one of the first things we saw was these lines kept getting clouded off. And everybody was like, well, that's odd. In fact, it's not clouded off. It's probably sitting against a vessel. So, you know, we'd go up there and we'd put a new line in or exchange the line or whatever. Nope, they were clouded off. You know, it happened time and time again. And then it's like, wait a second, what's going on here? Is there something going on that we didn't even think about? Is there, is there a clotting mm-hmm. issue going on? And now it's like, we're here we are a month later. It's like, Oh yeah, everybody was experiencing that, and there is something going on. You know, it's not just a, 
a coincidence that uh, we happen to have a few of those happen. It's like, no, this is this has been a real problem, and yeah, we have uh, had a had a real issue with it. But one more that's one more great thing about what a CRNA can offer is that we can say, you know what, I know that you're going to need this. I know you're going to need lines put in. I know you're swamped right now in the ICU. We can offer that to you. Why don't you let some of our staff come up and do that for you? And so we have been, you know, um, same thing oh, with, with managing vents and um, intubating and uh, A-lines and, um, you know, whatever you need, we can come and we can provide a lot of those services, you know, for you. So it's been a great way for our staff who maybe are just dropping patients off in the ICU on a typical day to actually go and be involved in the ICU right. and the care of these patients and get to know some of these, uh, you know, intensivists and some of the, the, the people that are staffed there. So it's been a, a great opportunity for us as a group, really. Right. And, you know, the uh, the benefit of a new set of eyes that's not, you know, not looking at the same thing every day when, when, when one of you guys are walking in there, it's a big win for those intensivists. You know, they get to ask really? and say, well, have you seen this in the other patients? You know what I mean? That kind of stuff. Right. So it's uh, it's one of the benefits of background and critical care experience that you've seen a lot of things before you ever got here or do any anesthesia, but anesthesia in and of itself is a, is, is incidental or, uh, you know, limited critical care and that all the sickest patients from the ICU, some of them need surgery and you'll be taking care right. of that patient the entire time throughout a period yeah. where you've actually impacted, you know, you've, you've suppressed cardiac function with anesthesia. You've, you know, paralyzed them, put a breathing tube in, and on top of that, you know, you've, you've, you've actually made it harder for their body to manage their disease in some cases. And then you make that difference up and that's all yep. direct action, critical care. And so I think there's, there's definitely a very, a very real role for CRNAs and in, in these intensivist situations and, you know, acting as a consultant in the ICUs of these guys. I mean, it's yeah. no doubt that the critical care fellows and those guys who do it every day, they're the experts, but you want, you know, I'm sure they want as much possible ideas and help as they can get just like anyone yeah. would in that same situation. Absolutely. Yeah, we had a we had a great opportunity as a as a department because we were running out of um, versed and fentanyl because they were using so much of it on these mm-hmm. patients. So these patients ended up being intubated, you know, for eight, nine, ten, eleven days. And they should just sedating the whole time. And you're talking about, <laughs> and this sounds crazy, but like you know, eight, nine, ten milligrams of of uh, versed an hour and two hundred mics of fentanyl an hour wow. for a week. You know, what I mean for for hundreds of patients, like the volume mm-hmm. they were going through. And then they were saying, well, we can't get this patient to wake up to get off the vent. So yeah, oh, he's got, he's, it's, it, yeah, yeah, just think about the compartments with all that stuff sitting in that 300 pounds that said is going to be in there for a week. Um, yeah. And so we were able to say, hey, you guys are certainly the experts. You guys know all about ICU management and sedation. Here's some options that you could consider. And so we, we talked about things like, you know, using things like Presidex and mm-hmm. propofol and ketamine and other options to say, hey, have, or, or PO drugs. So what, what things can we use to kind of mitigate all of that, you know, mm-hmm. as a consultant? To say, hey, we something we can offer you, because I know that you're thinking about all kinds of other things right now. Here's something we're really, really great at, and here's some options for you. And it's been helpful. It's been really helpful for these patients getting them off the vent uh, a little sooner, a little quicker, um, and, and re- uh, giving us a chance to use some drugs that um, we had more supply of and not wasting all of our fentanyl and Versed on uh, patients that are in the ICU. For long periods, yeah. It's a, you know, it's an incredible amount that you'd be having to, having to give to keep them, to yeah. keep them down. Yeah. It's, that is crazy, isn't it? 
Do you, so do you, oh, uh, it's crazy. do you, have you seen, uh, you mentioned that a lot of people are starting to get discharged. Uh, you know, as many are getting discharges admitted, which is just the exact, uh, the exact opposite of before they're all getting admitted. No one's getting discharged except for That's in exactly the celestial right. way. And so, uh, are you, you're starting to see a lot of people coming off the vent with this and getting out of the hospital? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't have, I can't tell you the percentage of patients that come off the vent versus the, on the vent, but, but we do have a nice high percentage of patients that are getting discharged. Um, and really, we, I think we discharged yesterday our thousandth patient. Um, wow. uh, from, yeah, so that's great news. We're really making good progress. Um, uh, that's that a testament to the work of everyone there, right? Totally, totally, yeah. Uh, you know, but like you said, the patients that get intubated don't, don't do as well. Um, uh, you know, overall, but, uh, but as a system, we've done real well. And I think in general, you know, patients, you know, most patients are going to do okay. Um, it's just the, mm-hmm. the large percentage of the ones that get very sick that don't, don't do so well. So at our hospital, we really, uh, have seen a lot of good success lately, um, uh, getting people off the vent and getting people dis- discharged. And it's so encouraging. It's a huge morale boost. It is. Say, oh yeah. T- today we we got three people off the vent, and we discharged twenty one. Like what a what a great day! It's like yes, yeah. we did it. You know, we did it. We're gonna we're gonna make it. We're gonna get through this. You know, it's, it's such a huge boost light for at people. the end of the tunnel. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. if it's all doom and gloom and everyone gets off the vent and everyone dies, you know, you, at some point you start to feel like you're not making a difference and you're not helping. Yeah, and, yeah. And that would be a horrible feeling. Yeah, yeah, I worry about that for people, that the, the the feeling of discouragement, you know, um, especially all, all the people in the ICU, because they go from very sick to not as very sick, but they don't get to see a lot of patients all the way through um, right. to the yeah. very end, you know. Yeah, because you're in the ICU all day. Even when you get your patient discharged from the ICU, they they're still sick and still in the hospital. Um, so, but you're you're right. It would be so disheartening if if, if there was no progress and it nothing that was coming out of it. Yeah, are you, are, we're making strides. Yeah. Yeah. I think we are, you know, are you guys, uh, seeing mostly patients in the hospital that have a lot of comorbidities that are elderly, that kind of yeah. thing, as opposed to the younger yeah. group? Not completely. I mean, there are, I, I am surprised every time we, we go to the ICU. I mean, we have, you know, a lot of ICUs right now, a lot of patients, a lot of areas that weren't ICUs that have turned into ICUs uh, right. in our hospital. Um, but I'm always surprised when I'm up there to see the, the smattering of, uh, 30 and 40 year olds, not, not a lot, but I'm always a little surprised, but mm-hmm. in general, almost everybody has something else going on. Um, uh, you know, with the exception of, uh, you know, a few, you know, and healthcare right. providers being one of the exceptions, seems like they're much more likely to get sick compared to the rest of the population. And when they do get sick, it seems like they're more likely to be more sick, um, than the rest of the population. Mm-hmm. But in general, it's people have, you know, renal disease, they have hypertension, they have underlying, uh, you know, immunologic issues or pulmonology issues. Right. Typically, that we're seeing some sort of combination of that, which is typical of our population here in Detroit. You know, you're talking well, about most people have, have a couple sure. of those things going on anyway, you know, and that's why I think part of the reason why we're hit so hard here, because people just aren't that healthy in general. 
Well, and that, yeah, and I think that brings us back to, you know, some of the some of the news coverage has been that, you know, Detroit's been hit really hard. And a large part of that has to do with the population, the economic, yeah. you know, situation that they're in, their inability yeah. to to maybe take as good care of themselves. It's cheaper to get McDonald's than it is to get a salad. And, totally. um, you know, all these things and it's built right into you over time. It's it's you know, it's it's just almost like its own culture when yeah. you grow up and that's what you do, you know. Absolutely. Unrelated to what race or culture you are, this is its own culture, and uh, oh yeah, and if that's what you do every time, is you know you have Kentucky Fried Chicken and you have McDonald's and you have um, Burger King and all stuff for every single meal, and because you can't afford the stuff that's right. really good for you, how are you yeah. going to be healthy? You know, yeah, it's, yeah, it's not even an option now. It's not like people are making bad choices; they don't have choices. So, <laughs> so true. Yeah, when know. we moved here into the city. It's, like, you know, it's been nine years now, eight years we moved into the city. There wasn't one mainstream grocery store in the city of Detroit. There wasn't one. Jeez. So uh, there were a lot of mom grocery stores, a lot of corner shops. We call them party stores, you know, like mm-hmm. a liquor store that happens to have yeah. some stuff. But there wasn't one mainstream uh, grocery store in a city of one million in the whole city. And there's a, uh, but there's a, the fast food places were ubiquitous, you know. Mm-hmm. Every corner has McDonald's and a Wendy's. Um, but or White Castle, but good luck trying to find you know a Whole Foods or a Trader Joe's. Um, just now, that's not true anymore. We do have a few a few of the mainstream uh, markets are here now, but um, again, they're much more expensive than uh, going to get a ninety nine cent Big Mac. You know, no, yeah. no doubt about it. Well, you know, I think some of some of what this highlights this pandemic has highlighted is the you know the economic disparities and how that really does affect your health. And, you know, and it's, it's a, it's focused on some of the most at-risk population in our country. And, and unfortunately, I know, I know a lot of people seem to think that people make choices and that what's, that's what puts them where they are that day. But that, that's really not accurate. There's a much bigger picture there and it's not always an individual's fault. And I, I think maybe I'm hoping that this sheds a light onto that, that, you know, we need to do better uh, for everybody. I agree. It really has revealed some of those things in our system that are, are really flawed, you know, and it's, it's painful to look at and we don't want to look at it right now because we're dealing with something else right now, but it's a reminder that we're going to have to face, face the music on some of these things at some point, you know, it's it's too costly for our people. These are our people, you know, and we need to do what we can for them, you know. How's amazing work you guys are doing there. So let me ask you, Josh, as we'll wrap it up. If, if you, what one story from this whole thing, uh, can you think of that kind of sheds a, a happy light on the, on the, on results you've seen people coming, you know, getting better. What's one you can yeah. think of, or you've been told. Yeah. I mean, for, for me personally, the, the, the biggest happiest moment was when our residence was excavated uh, a couple of days ago. So, you know, it, it, Kind of went down the process, you know, we're, we're okay. So he, you know, this person contracted, you know, uh, COVID-19 and is sick and, you know, so are a number of us. He'll get through it. And then, oh shoot, he wasn't doing well. He got admitted to the hospital. And it was like just a, a devastating blow for all of us, for the whole department. It's personal. Oh, no. Yeah. Like I know this guy, I work with this guy. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, I love this guy. I want him to do well. And, um, and it's like, just, oh man, that's, that's so hard. And then it was like, oh, now he's, 
in the ICU, like, oh shoot, like what's happening? Like how is this happening? And then and then we were we were asked, you know, hey, it's probably not the best for us to go keep visiting him, you know, which makes sense. You know what I mean? <laughs> you don't want the exposure. You know, you got yeah. you know hundred people going in and out when I check on this guy. Okay, so we can't go see him, but we have to wait for updates. And then I, I remember, I remember, I remember where I was when they said, "Oh, he was intubated last night." Like, oh no! Like, and everybody, everybody, everybody got choked up. Everybody was mm-hmm. just devastated at that moment. It was like, how can this be? How can this happen? You know, how can this be? And it was just such a glorious moment when he was extubated and then today discharged. It was like just a collective sigh of relief and kind of a sense of screw you COVID like we're going to yeah. we're going to beat you you know yeah. and it's just just the, the the feeling of relief from that was just so moving for all of us it would be departments become like a little family uh, or extension of your yeah. family you know you you go out and have drinks with these people you talk about your families to each other or what's going on on the weekend and you know when when something bad happens to someone there it's uh it really hits close to home and i think it um it when 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 something when something positive comes out of it, like in this case, it really changes the narrative for that department. It makes mm-hmm. it gives it gives you a bolster of confidence, but also relief. Yeah, totally. Well said. Well, thanks, Josh. I appreciate you coming on the podcast, and this was great. I think it'll be a really uh, eye opener for a lot of departments that aren't really seeing this hit yet. Um, but it's coming. It's likely coming. Yeah. And so, you know, be prepared is probably the key thing. And, and the population may get frustrated when they see the hospital doesn't have a lot of COVID-19 patients right now and they're not allowed to go to work or they're sitting at home. But ultimately, this is what keeps that from being as bad as it could be. Totally. Totally. Thank you for everybody that's doing that for us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And, and for all the CRNAs, wear your PPE. Wear your PPE. That's the key. Wear your PPE. Protect yourself. Don't touch your face. (laughs) Yeah, don't do right. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Josh. Thanks, Mike. That's all for this episode of Anesthesia Deconstructed. For more information based on today's discussion, be sure to visit us at anesthesia-deconstructed.com. You'll also gain access to our blogs, editorials, and more resources to keep you updated on the science, politics, and realities of today's medical industry. That's anesthesia-deconstructed.com. 